Our uh, ushers will be passing out note sheets and pencils, and if you need a Bible, please raise your hand so they can give that to you. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 22, so if you'd like to turn your Bibles there, you can do that now in preparation for the scripture that we're going to be uh, studying together this morning. But before we get into the Word, we wanted to share just a, a little heads up, a reminder of what we've got going on next week here at church. Um, we're going to be back in chapter 22 of Luke, but we also want to recognize that uh, next weekend is uh, the National um, Day for Unborn Life. We're going to be talking about the, the need to protect those who cannot protect themselves. Uh, we are, are very, very grateful for the life that God has given to us, and we are very diligent to, uh, to fight against the schemes of our enemy. And I think one of the things that we need to realize Satan is so good at doing is he's really good at making sin seem smaller than it is. That's one of the things he wants to do is he wants to teach us or train us or lie to us, deceive us into thinking that the things that we do against God's word don't really matter. They're not really serious. And we see the evidence of that in the way that our country approaches this idea of abortion. That somehow, because this child is not yet breathing the air that we breathe, that it is not a, a real life, that we can end that life to convenience ourselves. And that is something we've got to wash out of our minds, some, a concept that we cannot say amen to. Uh, God has given life, and He is the one that takes life. It is not our job to take it away. And, and as a church, we want, to, we want to stand beside those who are standing up and speaking for these children who cannot speak for themselves. I know my mom was 17 and my dad was 19 when I was born. And uh, they could have very easily said, you know what, we're not ready for this. This is something we can't financially handle. We're not wise enough to raise children. Let's just quietly do this uh, the way the world is doing things. And let's just get rid of this problem. And I would not be here today serving the Lord and, and speaking the word of God to you. And so we, we stand for the rights of children and we, we know that the Lord God loves the unborn just as much as he loves the born. And so we're going to be next week, um, we're going to be addressing these things and talking about them at a little bit more, more length. Uh, we want to share with you a, a video that's put together by Options for Win, uh, Women, this, this organization that we support and, and we pray for. Uh, just kind of give you a little a bit of a, a, a taste of what we're going to be talking about next week. We're going to be taking up a special offering for this ministry um, after the service is, or after our time in the Word is complete next week. And so, um, you know, pray about whether you want to be a part of that. If you want to participate in support of that ministry, we would love to see uh, you, of course, given to the, the ministries of your church. But there are other ministries that we, uh, we uh, agree with and love and support as well. So if that's something you would like to participate in, be praying about that and asking the Lord how he would have you contribute. But um, for the next few minutes, let's turn our eyes to the screen and watch this video that's been prepared for us.
So that will be one week from this morning. Um, when you come in, we're going to have our, our normal worship service, but uh, a part of that service is going to contain some uh, information. We're going to just point in some scriptures and, and talk about the way that the Lord God loves um, all that he has created, particularly human beings who are made in his image and uh, designed to carry and bear uh, the characteristics of our God. And so I hope that you'll be here next week for that. In the meantime, we are in Luke chapter 22. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up there. We are still at the table with Jesus and his disciples as we begin studying this morning. It is Thursday, uh, the first day of the Passover week, and Jesus has just transformed a familiar custom of the Jewish people into a sacrament for those who trust in Jesus Christ and will be saved by the work that he does on the cross in just a few hours after this dinner is, is completed. I want you to consider for a moment the role that tables play throughout Scripture. Think about it. In, in Psalm 23, our good shepherd, what does he do for us? He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, right? He prepares a table of fellowship. The shepherd has made it so that we can be near to him. He has put us into a right relationship with our God so that we can have communion with him, so that we can know him and fellowship with our God so that our sin will not separate us from him forever. We think about the parable of the wedding feast that we studied in Luke chapter 14, which described how the invited guests who were supposed to come to this monumental occasion and, and feast together with this family that is experiencing this wedding. Those guests who were invited were so caught up in their own lives and their own details that they decided to decline the invitation on the day of the wedding, that they, they had better things to do. And so what does that, that host do? He goes out into the highways and the hedges. He goes out into the, into the public and he finds whoever will listen and says, I want to invite you in to have a place at my table. I want you to, to feast with me and, and to enjoy and to celebrate what is being done here. And, and of course, that parable was indicative of the fact that the Lord God was opening up salvation to those who were not ethnically Jewish. The, 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 the grace of Jesus Christ was going to impact every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so these people that seemed to not be a people were, were going to be called in to be the people of God. And we read not long ago that Jesus was invited to a table by some folks that became his enemies, right? By these Pharisees and these scribes. They had heard that Jesus' ministry was catching traction and a lot of people were interested in him. He was becoming popular. And so they thought, let's invite this rabbi to come and eat with us. And so they offered a seat at their table. But Jesus knew that they were not really friends to him. They wanted him there for his popularity, but they didn't agree with much of what he was preaching. So he received that invitation, but he took advantage of that time at that table to show them that their hearts were not in the right place, to preach the truth to them. So hopefully some of them might repent and really deserve to have a place at God's table. If, if a prof professing believer is living under, under sin and is, is walking in, in destructive paths, then the scripture tells us that we are to approach them in love and, and, and tell them about their sin and to confront them in that. And in the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11 warns us that we're all, not only to disassociate with those who will willingly live in sin and refuse to repent, but we're not even supposed to share a meal with them, not even supposed to share a table with these individuals. So this concept of the table shows up again and again throughout Scripture and it has very significant meaning. The table is meaningful because it is a symbol of friendship. It is a symbol of inclusion and it represents unity between those who share the table together. Jesus has brought these men around a table for one last meal that he's going to enjoy with them before he completes his mission and gives his life up. 
And yet here in the midst of this Last Supper, there is one person at this table, one person who is not a friend, one who is ready to betray the unity of that gathering of brothers, that fellowship that, that Jesus Christ had built. And Jesus reveals this to his disciples and the way that they react to the news that there is a betrayer among them gives us insight into the sinful heart of man. It might even give us insight into our own hearts today. I pray that it will. Let us read together as the book of, of God, his holy scripture, teaches us powerful things from, Roman, or from Luke chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Jesus begins by pointing out the irony that the one who is responsible for his betrayal is sitting there at the table with him in that very moment. The way this is written in the original Greek, the term for betray is actually in participle form, which means that he is betraying. So it might even be better translated, behold, the hand of the one who is in the process of betraying me <coughs> is with me at the table. Now the betrayal is not complete, but it has already begun. In the pocket of Judas is 30 silver pieces that he received for the work that he promised to do in, in telling these high priests where Jesus would be so that they might arrest him in private. The betrayal is, is, is in motion already. There's a film in, uh, in theaters right now that might have just cycled out of films, or out of theaters, I'm not sure, but it's based on a, a famous novel written by Agatha Christie. It is a, a, a kind of a detective novel called Murder on the Orient Express. And it's a story about a group of travelers who are all riding a train together when someone is murdered in the middle of the night. And for the rest of this trip, the, the weather is such that they can't get off the train, they have to stay on that train. And so for the rest of this trip, the tensions rise as they are aware of the fact that one of the people sitting among them is the murderer, yet they don't know who it is. And this mention of the betrayer who is sitting there at the table, I wonder if it felt somewhat like that as it is revealed to these men that the one who's going to turn Jesus in is actually sitting there eating with them. Judas was not a stranger. He was not a rival. He was one with whom Christ had regularly broken bread. Jesus would be betrayed by the one who had received phileo, brotherly love from him, on a daily basis. It reminds me of Psalm 41.9. It says, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Uh, keep in mind, and, and, and we touched on this last week, that the sovereign will of God is being played out in every event that leads up to the cross. This is all part of God's plan. In no way, shape, or form was God's plan derailed by the efforts of the high priests. In no way, shape, or form did Judas interrupt what God intended to do through Christ. In fact, without knowing it, Judas is playing a key role in Jesus fulfilling his destiny. So this betrayal by a close associate, somebody that he cared for, somebody that he knew was painful, but it was not a surprise to Jesus. Verse 22 tells us that the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. 
That means it, it, it plays out as God has decided it to be beforehand. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. God has ordained for this treachery to happen. But that does not remove responsibility and guilt from Judas, the man by whose hand it will happen. He willingly betrayed Jesus in fulfillment of what had been determined, and he is responsible for his actions. Acts 2.23 affirms this dichotomy, this interesting, seemingly paradoxical truth that God is sovereign and is in charge, and yet we have responsibility of our actions as well. Look at Acts 2.23. This is Peter preaching to his fellow Jewish countrymen at the day of Pentecost. And he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So in that one verse, in those few words, Peter is acknowledging what we're going to be discussing in part today. That God had every intention of Jesus coming to earth and giving his life. He knew that he would be betrayed. It was part of his grand plan for redemption. And yet those who are involved still have culpability. It is still by the hands of these Jewish people that did not recognize the Messiah when he, would be, he had been sent to them that Jesus was crucified and killed. God planned that it would happen, but your actions made it happen. This is what Peter is saying to these Jewish folks. This may seem like a paradox, and yet it is the reality that we live in. God is sovereign over all things. And yet within the sphere of his sovereign control, he has determined to allow a degree of freedom to his creation. Now that freedom is never allowed to go so far as to override God's sovereign plan or to interrupt it. But we do have dominion over certain choices that we make and certain actions that we take in this life. For example, if a temptation comes my way, I have an opportunity to sin and to break the Lord's word. And that means I have a choice, don't I? I have a choice to bend to the pressure of my temptations and to give in to them, to indulge my flesh, and in doing so, to ignore the word of God. Or I have a choice to rather stand against those temptations and choose a more excellent way to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit that God has given to me so that I might stand firm and not give in to that temptation. Now, if I choose sin, is the sovereign hand of God forcing me to do what is wicked and is evil? No, absolutely not. Otherwise, God would be the author of sin. He would be, be a guilty party with me in the completion of that sin. But is my choice to sin indicative that I have overruled God the Father and that he does not have sovereign authority over me in that moment? Absolutely not. God remains in perfect control. And though he did not force me to sin, he has governed the way that even my sins and failings will fit into the overall story of his plan. So we might ask ourselves this morning, how can God be in control of everything, but at the same time not be responsible for our sin? I have an illustration I hope will help us to understand this. Quick poll. How many of you have ever blown anything up? Raise your hand if you've ever blown anything up. All the guys smiled and raised their hands. Oh, I think there's like one woman with her hand up. Thank you, Amber. Okay. 
If you have a driver's license and did not raise your hand, you should have raised your hand. If you drove your car to church today, do you realize that within the cylinders of your gasoline combustion engine, you caused literally millions of tiny explosions? Now, no one died from those explosions. They didn't level any cities, but they did happen, right? And you made them happen by turning the key in your ignition. Now, we typically associate explosions with terrorism or with war or with tragic accidents or mass destruction. But under the hood of your car, a powerful destructive force is being harnessed by the brilliant planning of engineers. That wild explosion fits into the overarching design of the combustion engine. And though the event of spark igniting fuel and oxygen produces heat, produces friction, produces noise, it also produces tons of energy. Energy that can be harnessed and directed. And the careful planning of its design also makes sure that it happens nicely within the grander scheme of what an engine does. See, that series of perfectly timed explosions plays a key part in making productive energy that can translate into work. Your car moves forward because of those tiny little explosions. It carries you where you need to be. Whether or not you can explain what is happening under the hood of your car, the dangerous forces that propel the vehicle forward are being harnessed by the intricate designs of the engineer. Someone here probably drives an electric car and has totally missed the point of this whole illustration. <laughs> but what I'm getting at, I hope, is, is obvious. Our sin is dangerous, isn't it? Our sin is ugly. It is destructive. But our sovereign God is able to use our sin in constructive ways to aid in the accomplishment of his greater good. I'm not suggesting here that our sin somehow powers the world. What I'm saying is that God is the grand engineer of all existence. And he has allowed sin to exist within his creation. It plays a role. It is used to produce a greater good. But we are responsible for committing it ourselves. Jesus is well aware of his betrayer's intentions. He is acknowledging here that it is all as the Lord has determined it to be. However, the fact that God has set it up to happen the way that it happens does not remove the responsibility from Judas. See, man is so motivated to somehow find fault in anyone but himself when his faults are brought to the surface. Are we not? We, we desire to point the finger and there are whole industries built on helping us to draw out all the reasons that we are sinful here today so we can prove that it's not us who's doing it, but it's some other person who messed us up and put us off course and damaged us and scarred us to make us who we are today. We don't want to be responsible for our actions. We want to believe that some other outside wicked force has caused every sin we've ever committed. We even go so far sometimes as to think that the Lord God could prevent this sin if you would just be more active in our lives so it is his fault that I have sinned. Friends, we cannot use God's sovereignty as an excuse for our own personal evil. Though God has allowed evil to pollute his creation for a time and for a purpose, he is not the generator of evil. 
nor is he an evil mastermind that's pulling strings behind the scenes and then blaming it all on us so that he can shirk the responsibility. In fact, one of the first steps in a person being saved happens when the Holy Spirit of God begins to open our eyes to the fact that our sin is real and that it is ours. Prior to the Holy Spirit doing that, Scripture tells us that no one is righteous and no one seeks after God. So if you've ever felt God drawing you to Himself, John 6 says that no one comes to the Lord unless they are drawn by Him. If you've ever felt a curiosity towards the things of the Spirit, if you've ever thought about the big questions of life, why are we here? Is there a God? Did He make me? And how do I interact with Him? What is the purpose and plan that He has designed for my life? If you feel drawn to know Him, then perhaps that is the Holy Spirit turning your heart of stone into a heart of flesh. And if it is, eventually the Spirit's going to do this for you. The Spirit is going to make you see your sin differently. It's going to make you see it as not just an inconvenience or not just a, I didn't act as good as I could have in that moment. He's going to help you to see that when we break God's command, it is an offense to our very Creator. He will change your mind about sin and make you hate your sin. He will help you to see that you don't want that sin to be a part of your life. That is the work of the Spirit in you. And it is a work that only He can do because our hearts, our hearts embrace sin naturally. We do it as long as it's useful to us, as long as it gets us somewhere. It is only by the work of God that we come to really truly hate our sin and recognize our responsibility in it. Verse 25 goes on to say, and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was doing this wrong. So none of them thinks it's themselves, right? They're all kind of looking and pointing. Jesus reveals that one is going to betray them and they react immediately by questioning one another to try to figure out who this betrayer is. Kind of like those people on the Orient Express. Who's the murderer? Who can I trust? Who can't I trust? Notice this. We can deduce something very interesting from the way they react. Since they all looked around at each other and began pointing fingers and asking who it could be, we can deduce that Judas played the role of disciple quite convincingly, didn't he? There is no indicator that when Jesus said his betrayer was among them, that they all immediately turned and looked at Judas. And everybody was like, oh, we, we saw that coming. Not a single indicator that that's the case. Apparently, by the way that he conducted himself, Judas came across as just one of the brothers and someone who was on board with the mission of the Messiah. Whatever motivated his heart to turn against Jesus, his rabbi, he kept it hidden tightly in his heart. He played the part of disciple convincingly and he had everybody fooled. Friends, fruit, which is often a symbol for the good work that we do in this life, the righteous deeds that we might do in obedience to God, fruit is not a perfect indicator of true faith. 1 John 3, 10, this, this book is an excellent uh, letter that gives us information and insight on how to tell if we are truly saved. And it's mostly pointed at the individual. How can you know if your faith is real? Ask yourself, what is your attitude towards sin? Ask yourself, am I surrendered to the Lord God? Do I desire to get better in life and to do more 
things that would please the Lord God to, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Because if I just go on sinning, then how can the Holy Spirit be in me? And one of the things that they say in 1 John 3 is in verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John, the beloved disciple, does instruct us that one of the ways that we can tell whether we are saved, one of the ways that we can tell if somebody else may or may not be saved is look at their life. Is there evidence of the love of God in them? Now, it doesn't say that a person's got to be a perfect, obedient Christian. And it doesn't say that if you sin once or twice, you're done. It says if you go on living in sin continually without a repentant heart, if you're not trusting in the Lord to overcome it, then you have to ask yourself, is Jesus really your Lord? So look at, look at the actions, look at the proof of faith. But friends, we can see from the example of Judas here that there are times when people seem so saved to us. They watch and they observe. They read the rules and they think, I can do this. And for a time, they can. For a time, they come across as someone trustworthy, someone who has given their life to Christ. They say the right things. They do the right things. They're in the church whenever the doors are open. And yet there may be something lacking in them. Righteous deeds are not always accompanied by a righteous heart. And determining one's heart is not a simple science. Proof of true faith must go beyond just our actions. These actions should stem from a love for the Father God, for the Spirit, and for His Son. I'm reminded of a time in, in Isaiah, just off the top of my head, when the Lord God, through the prophet, admonishes Israel and says, Stop bringing your offerings to me. I don't want your sacrifices anymore because your heart doesn't love me like it should. Your sacrifices are empty offerings because you don't care inside about who I am and about being close to me. So it shows you that those people in the time of Isaiah were doing the things they were instructed to do. They were walking through the patterns of obedience, but the heart was not evident in them. And the Lord God admonished those Israelites because of it. Friends, we cannot afford to let our actions camouflage a dead heart that is cold to the things of the Lord. And so when we come in here and we preach the righteousness of, of Christ and we encourage you to, to battle your sin and to think about the things that you do and say and feel so that you might walk in a righteous way to the Lord, don't mistake that as us telling you that you are here to, to, to do the right things in order to earn your place with the Lord God. We are asking you, we are challenging you and ourselves as well to consider your heart and to consider what you love. Do you love the Lord God? Because if He is your first and primary love, then you will desire to do these things that He has called you to do. The twelve are looking around the table and they are investigating one another. They are trying to determine who cannot be trusted. And from this conversation grows a rather surprising discussion. Look again at Luke chapter 22. In verse 24, it says, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So two seconds ago, who's the traitor? But very quickly, who's the greatest? Which one of us is the best? Verse 25, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. 
Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. What an interesting turn of conversation between verses 23 and 24. The conversation goes from which of us is betrayer to which of us is greater. How do they make that stretch? How does that change happen? One minute they're intent at identifying this this turncoat and the next minute they're trying to prove which one of them deserves the greatest credit for their faithfulness to Christ. Let me connect the line between what we read a few minutes ago and what we are looking at now. Judas first fools the 11, doesn't he? Judas fools the 11 into thinking that he is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. He does the things on the outside that indicate faith, but within him there is not a heart that loves Christ. There is not a surrender to the lordship of the Father and of his Son. And so he has fooled the 11 into believing that he is a disciple. And now the 11 fool themselves. They fool themselves into believing that they are more faithful than they really are. They are intent on convincing everyone else that their faith is so strong in Jesus Christ that there's no way they could be the uh, the deceiver. There's no way they could be the one who betrays. This argument over who is the greatest likely stems from each of them trying to convince the others that their faithfulness to Jesus makes it impossible for them to be the one who is turning on Christ. Surely I'm not the one who turns on the Lord. I'm the most faithful disciple here in this room. Andrew says, I bring everyone to see Jesus. Whenever I meet someone new, I'm always bringing them to Jesus. I'm the evangelist. How could I be the betrayer? John says, but I'm the beloved disciple. I'm the one that Jesus loves. He cares for me and he lets me go up on the mount to see him in this transfigured state. Of course, it's not me. And perhaps Peter says, I'm the only one who walked on water. You guys stayed in the boat. I had the faith. I got out of the boat. Not only that, I I gave the right confession when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And I said, you're the son of God. I I was the one who said that. That's me. How how could I be the the betrayer? Each of them presenting their case. Each of them fighting against the fact that in reality, all 12 of them fall short. Any one of them has the potential to turn against their master. And any one of us has the potential to do the Lord harm as well. In just a few hours their master is going to ask them to do something very important. They're going to finish their dinner. Jesus has a few more things to say and then they're going to leave that upper room and they're going to go out into a a quiet, peaceful place. It's the middle of the night. They're going to go out to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is going to ask them for something. Now Jesus has been giving to them, giving to them, pouring into them, but here in his final hours, he's going to ask these men for something. He's going to say, please, brothers, pray for me. What I'm about to experience is difficult. Pray for me. And he walks away for a few steps and prays. Before you know it, he turns around and he looks. And what are they all doing? They are sleeping. This one who has given so much asks something so little and they won't even stay awake to pray for their Savior. And he wakes them and says, genuinely, I need you to pray for me. Pray for me. And he walks away and begins praying again and he wakes up and again, they are asleep. These men have betrayed Jesus in failing to pray for him. And then Jesus is going to be apprehended. In the middle of this prayer time, Judas returns. 
He did not accompany them to Gethsemane. He went because he had business to attend to and he brings back a battalion of soldiers. He kisses Jesus on the cheek, which was a sign that he had given these soldiers as to the, which one of them was actually Jesus. And the soldiers come and they arrest him. That wakes them up for sure. They're not sleepy anymore. He'll be pulled away from them. He'll be taken to trial where he's going to be accused of any number of allegations. And do these men stay by his side? Do they stand with their master? No. They flee. They hide. They crouch into the shadows and look out for their own safety. Who among them is the greatest? Was it even worth fighting over? How we view ourselves, friends, is a very tricky thing. It is so easy to miss the mark in regards to how we assess our own faithfulness to the Savior. I, I learned as a very young child in Sunday school that the Hebrew um, phrase for sin literally means to miss the mark. You might use the phrase when you're talking about an archer who's trying to hit a target and misses it one way or the other. Satan rejoices when you miss the mark. He would love for you to pull to the right or pull to the left and miss the, the target that Christ has set for you. We might pull to the right when it comes to our personal assessment of our own faithfulness and think, I am a wretched creature. I am a failure. I am worthless. Why would Jesus ever like someone like me? Why would he ever give me his love and forgive me? My sin is too great for the cross to overcome. Satan would love for you to miss the mark and think of yourself in those terms. Satan would love also if you pulled your bow to the left and missed the mark by thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to. The Lord God is lucky to have me on his team. What a faithful man am I. I do all the things that I am supposed to do. I give tremendous tithes to this church. If it wasn't for me, I don't know how they'd keep these ministries going on. I am a man of God and I am a good example to everyone. You see how both of those attitudes miss the mark. Neither one of them describes how a Christian should view his own faithfulness. Instead, we should see ourselves for what we are. We should see ourselves for what Christ has made us to be. First and foremost, we are a valuable creation. We are made in the image of God, and that makes us lovable. It's not our financial portfolio. It's not our skill set that can be useful to the society we live in. It's not our incredible intellect. What makes us valuable is the image of God in us. So we mean something to the Lord God. Secondly, we have lost much of that value because of our sin. By fighting against the one who made us, by disgracing his law, we become enemies to the cross. We become enemies to the Lord God. But we have had that value restored and increased by the grace of Jesus Christ. By giving himself on the cross, he gave his perfect life as a sacrifice for our broken lives. And all who trust in him now will experience a closeness and a oneness to God that they could not have earned on their own. And I believe that, that we will be better off in this new state of redemption. We will appreciate the glory of God. We will understand and be more thankful had we never sinned in the first place. There is, there is a fortunate dynamic to the fall of man that God has allowed this for a reason. And I believe that in eternity we will see part of the reason why God has allowed that is that we would love him greater, that we would appreciate him more, that we would not take him for granted as we so often do. So praise be to him. 
He is the one who has made us. Praise be to him. He is the one who has saved us from our sin. Praise be to him. Apart from him, we're nothing. But in him, we can do great things thanks to the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in our heart. We can boast now, not in ourselves, not in our accomplishments or the position that we've earned, but we should boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, in his victory over our sin. Our lives should not be lived to our own glory. We should not be building a resume for ourselves that we get to show to God one day when we're before the throne. Rather, we should be living in such a way that Christ is glorified in and through us. And that does not happen unless we embrace being a servant of God. Jesus does not put up with their boasting and with their resume sharing as they try to determine who is the betrayer. Instead, he seizes this moment to teach them that they were not to follow the leadership patterns that were characteristic of the secular world that they lived in. That is not the way they are going to live. Listen, leadership is all around us, isn't it? We are surrounded by bosses and by politicians and by police officers. Even within the family dynamic, there are grandparents and parents and older siblings and younger siblings. There is leadership all around us. And there is no shortage in this world of materials that have been written trying to give you wisdom on how to be a good and successful leader. How to command respect. How to get things done. How to inspire and direct. The world thinks they know a lot about leadership. But these are not the standards that you and I should be striving to model our lives after, friends. Jesus says that the Gentile leaders, though they were often very powerful, though they were influential, though they were heralded by the masses, some of those Roman leaders were even worshipped as demigods, Jesus tells us that that is not the pattern that we are to set in our minds when we think about growing as leaders and serving God in a leadership role. And there are a number of good reasons for that. First of all, Jesus explains that the king of the Gentiles, the kings of the Gentiles, they lord it over those who are they are, they are leading. They, they, they leverage their authority over those who are under their command. They use their position to their advantage at the expense of those who are subordinates to them. We see a taste of this right now. Just every day in the media, you hear about another person who in the framework and the hierarchy of Hollywood, another woman who was abused by somebody who had more fame than they did, someone who had more influence in the industry than they did, someone that had more power on the movie set. It seems like it's never ending. Again and again and again, people are being exposed. This is the way the world leads. Power is used in such a way that it is lorded over those who are weaker. And thankfully now, some of those who thought they were powerful are not as powerful as they thought because their sins are, sins are being brought out onto the table and exposed. Praise the Lord for that. So the Lord God does not want us to follow these patterns because the leaders of the world tend to lord their authority over those who are below them. Secondly, those people in positions of influence, those who sit above others, are described as benefactors. And that word is an, is, is an important word to focus on. What does that mean? To be a benefactor means that you receive the benefits of your reign. Those who, who lead in a secular way are leading so that they might benefit from their own authority, from their power, and from the position that they have secured for themselves. They desire 
to, to be richer because of their position. They desire to have more influence, more pull. They desire to be able to live the life they want to live and to craft corporations and organizations and communities that fit their desires rather than thinking about the way that, that the, the community would best benefit from their leadership. And so Jesus says in verse 26, but th it is not this way with you. And I love how he phrases that. He's not saying there that you guys never make this mistake. It's never this way with you. What he's saying is, it will not be this way with you. It is not going to be this way with my leaders. You're not going to be those who lord their authority over others. You're not going to serve in such a way that you could fill your own pockets and just benefit from your position of power. There is a radical reversal of expectations here. The world would seek power for the luxury of not having to serve. The believer would seek power to serve God and others more powerfully. Their desire to be leaders is so that they might better serve people around them. That is how a Christian should think. If God would put me in a position of authority, how can I use this for His glory better? How can I bless His people by this position that I've been given? Jesus says, the one who is greatest must become like the youngest. There is a transformation that needs to be wrought in their lives and their attitudes and their focus on the power that has been entrusted with them. Praise the Lord, at least one of the 11 disciples were paying attention. As Jesus set them straight, Peter took that to heart. We see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, how he then takes what he has been taught from the Savior and teaches it to the churches in Asia Minor. Listen to these scriptures. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those who are in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In verse 5, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Godly leadership is not there to take. Godly leadership gives sacrificially. Husbands, consider that truth. When you weigh in on the important fact that the Lord God has assigned you to a role that may be easily exploited, when he calls your wives to submit to you and to be gentle to your leadership and to receive that, husbands, take that seriously. What kind of a leader does God want you to be to your wife? He wants you to be a servant leader. He does not want you to lord your authority over that woman. He wants you to gently care for her and nurture her. He wants you to consider her needs, to take the time to understand her, to help her to grow and to mature, to bring her to the word of God instead of just bringing her to your rule and your authority. We are called by the Lord God to be humble servant leaders in our homes. Those of you who are serving in a management position in your jobs, consider what that means to you that the Lord God would not have you be a CEO, would not have you be a shift manager, would not have you be a, a, a person who is in charge on the work side, a foreman, in such a way that you're modeling yourself after the pattern of the world, where you shout and people jump because you've shown them you're stronger than them and you have advantage over them. Rather, 
take these principles into your job and lead with a servant's heart as God has taught you to do so. And many of those people who are not saved might see a difference in you that they don't see in their other managers. And their other managers who are happy to use their position to further their own careers and to better their own position. Serve your God by serving your employers, employees. Older siblings, brothers and sisters who have little brothers and little sisters. The next time mom and dad puts you in charge of your brothers and sisters, how are you going to lead them? Are you going to twist their arm behind their back because you're bigger and you're in charge? You're going to make them do what you want them to do? Are you going to exploit that power? Or are you going to serve the Lord God by looking after your little brothers and sisters? Are you going to care for them? And once you have grown, brothers and sisters, if you are perhaps the oldest among your siblings and one of your parents passes away and there is a trust and a will, how are you going to use that point person authority? If you're the executor of that trust, how are you going to use that to the benefit of your family? Are you going to take that leadership opportunity and use it to fill your own pockets? Are you going to hold it as leverage over your brothers and sisters? Or are you going to faithfully minister to the Lord by ministering to your family? There are so many ways that these principles play out in our lives. Godly leadership serves sacrificially. And so the leader must become like the servant. And this becomes even more vibrant to us when we remember, as we mentioned last week, that the book of John tells us at the very beginning of this table session, at the very beginning of this dinner, what did Jesus do for his disciples? He girded his own waist, he got on his knees, and he washed the feet of the very people that were supposed to be serving him. They called him rabbi, they called him Lord, and yet he took on the role of a servant and humbled himself to do a dirty, thankless job. In just a few hours, he would wash more than their feet. He would wash away all of their sin by the shedding of his own blood upon the cross. Verse 27 says, For who is the greater? This essentially means, For what is greatness? What does it mean to be great? What does it mean to be a good, faithful leader? For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? The answer to that is obvious. It's the one who reclines. It's the one who has, who has the ability to sit while he is served by someone else. And Jesus affirms that. Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Clearly, he is the one who deserves to be served. And yet he is showing them not just with words, not just with preaching, but with his example that he is willing to do the work that he's calling them to do. He is leading them as a servant. The king of kings is the ultimate example of humility to his followers. Friends, leadership is not the ability to be lazy because you've acquired a position of power. That's not what real leadership is. A lot of people think that. If I can just get to a certain level where I've earned my spot up high, then I can let everyone else do the work and I can just sit back and coast and put my feet up on the table that I've earned. That's not leadership. The power to press your will upon others because they are weaker than you and you have authority, that's not godly leadership. Basking in the praises that you think you deserve for your exceeding prowess among your peers and, and for your victories, that's not true leadership. Leadership is not a means by which we leverage our own desires, and fulfill our will in this world. 
True leadership is putting the needs of others before our own needs and making sure that the Lord's will is done in and through us, no matter what station of life God puts us at. The ancient philosopher Plato wrote a book called The Republic, uh, probably around 400-ish BC, which is essentially a discussion between a number of philosophical powerhouses. They're just sitting around chewing the fat. And the whole book is just them discussing ideas and talking about concepts and theories. And one of the main topics of discussion is government, politics. Namely, they want to know what would be the ideal government. If you could just start from scratch and build the best human government possible, what would it look like? Now, this is not scripture. I know it's not, it's not going to teach us the truth of the world. And in fact, much of what they say uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, doesn't have any practical reality. The bulk of the topic revolves around that question, though, and I think there's one insight that is particularly worth looking at. They are talking about, they kind of narrow it down to having one benevolent leader is the best way to do it. If you could find a person of pure heart who is good and let them lead, then they'll have the freedom to make good decisions and they'll be an example and they will streamline things so that there's not too much bureaucracy. But there's a lot of different caveats to that theory. They said, well, if we're going to have one leader, we got to make sure that that leader is very well compensated. We got to make sure that he doesn't need anything. Because if he gets into his position and he's not making as much money as the other people he's ruling, his human heart is going to deceive him. And he's going to want what they have and it's going to make him rule in a bitter and selfish way. So we've got to make sure that that leader is, is well cared for. The concept is that the greatest leader is the one who doesn't need anything. Ironically, I think they got that right on accident. The greatest leader is the one who doesn't need anything. And God can lead us without exploiting us, without taking us for granted, without, without manipulating us because he is not lacking anything. God is the one who needs nothing. So there's nothing we have that he needs to squeeze out of us. Even sometimes we think, well, God needs our worship. He doesn't need our worship. He's glorious without us. We need the worship of God. We need to worship him. That's good for us. That is a blessing to us. Now, I'm sure it blesses him to hear us praising him and singing his, his glories. But he's not lacking anything if there's not a human in his existence at all. He's still perfectly God. So who can lead better than this God who, who needs nothing? This God who is lacking in no way, shape, or form. He is the one who's going to set up reality the way it needs to be set up. He is the one that we can trust to do what is right for us because he doesn't have to lead from a position of selfishness. Friends, we also become the best leaders we can be when we realize that in Christ, we need nothing. We have all that we need if we have him. God has been putting that truth to the test in some of our lives, hasn't he? He's been taking away some of the things that we think we need. He's been removing them. And the answer is, am I enough for you? And again and again, you have blessed me with your faithful testimony as family by family has said, though I hurt from my loss, though this is hard for me, Jesus is enough for me. I can withstand this. I can endure it because Christ is enough for me. So if you have been given a position of leadership in this world or you earn a spot where you have power over others, remember, you don't need to use that position to better your life and to fill your pockets with cash and to get praise heaped upon you, you have everything that you need in Jesus Christ. He is sufficient. 
And that should give you the freedom to lead with a servant's heart, to let the Lord God direct your steps and light your path so that the choices you make as a leader, so that the example you set as a person who's been put before others with authority might be an example of humility and love that reflects the humility and love of your God. Now, Jesus is not nullifying the efforts of his disciples or looking past their sacrifices. They have made sacrifices. These men have left all to follow after him. The persecution that Jesus is receiving, he's even promised them, you're going to receive this same persecution because you're associated with me. He knows that. And so observe these last few verses of this section. Verse 28 says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is very careful here not to drive his men into the kind of shame that would have us miss the mark to the right and think of ourselves as worthless failures. Instead, he says, listen, you will not be like the world Correct that attitude because that's not how my servants serve. But remember, God has brought victory to your lives already. That you have done what you are called to do. You're being faithful to me. And I will sustain you. You will remain faithful to the end. And when you reach the end, there's a blessing waiting for you in heaven that exceeds exponentially what you could ever attain for yourself here through the secular model of leadership that only cares about the self. So there is a sense in which these 12 will enjoy the many benefits that come with leadership, but it's going to happen more properly in the context of the fulfilled kingdom. You know, the kingdom of God is here in a sense right now, but it is not the fulfilled kingdom because sin is still here. When our king returns, he is going to rid his creation once and for all of that sin that pollutes truth and righteousness. And his kingdom will be once again pure and absolutely beautiful. And we will dwell there with him. And those who have trusted in Jesus Christ will be ruling with him, will be a part of that kingdom's leadership. The order that seems absent in the chaotic world that we live in today will be fully restored in the fullness of the kingdom that is to come in Jesus Christ. And so we see here that Jesus, though he is not bashful about confronting the the deficiencies of his disciples, does not wish them to be discouraged by their admonition. Rather, he nudges them to look ahead at what God will do with them in the consummation of his kingdom, in the days that lie in between. Just as Judas is set to play the role of betrayer, just as God has known from the beginning of time that Judas would turn his back on the twelve and on Christ, so too does God know that those who trust in him will endure to the end, that no stumbling block will will pry them away from their God, that he he will give them the strength to endure and to make it to that final glory that he has prepared for us. Let's close our eyes and and thank the Lord for this word and ask that he would apply it to our lives in a way that glorifies himself. Lord, you are good and we praise you for all that you have provided for us. May we know you. May we rejoice in you, Lord God. May we understand the, the humility that is necessary to come near to a God who is greater than all things. Father, you, uh, you impress us, Lord. All the leaders that we have had to live underneath, Father, fall short of your glory. We have a president that's nowhere near as as 
beautiful and loving and as graceful and true as you. We have bosses at work that are nowhere near as beautiful and loving and as graceful as you, Lord. We have, we have been leaders ourselves in such a way that we did not display your humility and your patience and your truth and your selflessness. So, Lord God, we need these words. We need this scripture to set our hearts right. I pray that we would evaluate whatever authority that you have been putting into our lives, Lord, that you would help us to see it. You'd help us to rejoice in your power. And that, Lord, we would know you more the more we surrender in obedience to your scripture. God, thank you for your grace that when we stumble and fall that you can overcome it. I pray, Lord, that you would abound in our families, that as we study the scripture together as a family, Lord, you would help us to see these truths and that, Lord, one after another we can set the example for others, Lord, that they might follow Christ as we imitate you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.